I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. This is episode 8, and this week we'll be talking about Philip Jose Farmer's The Maker of Universes. I'm your co-host, Hoy, and with me as always is the mighty Jeff Goad. Well, hello there. Hello, Jeff. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been a little while. Okay. So uh, this is exciting. I mean, we're always excited, but uh, why don't we talk a little bit about uh, what we're reading this week? Sure. So right here we have uh, Philip Jose Farmer's The Maker of Universes. My version is a first edition paperback from 1965. Did you scribble all over it as I always? I did, yes. I have things underlined and highlighted because I am a horrible, horrible human being. <laughs> or maybe he's uh, reached another plane of enlightenment that we can talk about in another alternate universe. <laughs> and my copy has a really lovely Jack Gogan cover. Uh, in the Maker of Universes, the sky is green. So here we have this gorgeous harpy, who is Padarge from the story, uh, flying over a jagged mountain peak, looking quite stunning. Right, and that's, uh, I believe, by Jack Gogan. Uh, like, the wings are very typical of him, because he draws cloaks a lot like that. They're very mm. sort of flowy. And, uh, yeah, it's nice. Great. The one problem with it, though, is that in the story, they make it clear that her wings are her arms, and on this cover, she has arms and wings. Mm-hmm. I know that's a very geeky thing for me to uh, quibble over, but I'm just saying it's a gorgeous cover, but it's not quite factually correct. I think you might have to give up that copy, Jeff. I think it's going to bother you from now on. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll hold on to it. Thank you, okay. though. I have the 1980s printing, I think around by 1977 or so. Uh, Boris Vallejo had started doing the cover for this one, and it's also greenish and has podage, but she has wings instead of arms. Yeah. And it's so prototypically 70s. He's wearing what looks like cutoffs, oiled up, uh, you know, sex fan kind of cover. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't even like Boris as much that much, but I remember spe- I got this one specifically because this is the copy I remember seeing when I was a kid, and so I had to get this copy again. The birds in the background, they almost look like roosters, but I guess those are the giant... Oh, those, those, are the, those are the big eagles. Those are giant eagles. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes. Right. At first look, yeah, they, they, they look much less menacing at first. All right. Do you want to uh, read the back copy on your copy there? Sure. Yeah. When Robert Wolfe found a strange horn in an empty house, he held the key to a different universe. To blow that horn would open up a door through space-time and permit entry to a cosmos where dimensions and laws were not those of our starry galaxy knows. Mine's slightly different. It says, Robert Wolfe's discovery of a strange horn in an empty house catapulted him into the most incredible adventure of all time. For that horn could open up a door through space-time to a cosmos with dimensions and laws totally different from our own. The universe he entered was a place of tears, world upon world, piled on each other, and each level was different and more fantastic than the next. In order to return to his home, Wolf would have to ascend each tier and contend with weird creatures like Kikaha the Trickster, Padarj the Venomous Eagle Woman, until he found his way to the topmost tier, and the god or the madman that ruled the universe. Cool, yeah. So I guess before we go into the library and discuss what we thought about this book and what it had to do with gaming, we're going to quickly discuss our Hygaxian word of the day. Prognathus. Prognathus, or... Prognathus. 
Both are correct pronunciations. And so, Jeff, what does prognathus mean, and how is it used? Well, the word means being or having an upper or lower jaw that projects abnormally forward. And we find it on page 36, and it says, It had a very low forehead, a double ridge of bone above the eyes, thick mossy eyebrows, close-set lemon-yellow eyes, a flat, single-nostrilled nose, thin black animal lips, and a prognathous jaw which curved out far and gave the mouth a frog-like appearance. No chin and the sharp, widely separated teeth of a carnivore. That's me after a long Friday night. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so now we can go into the library and we can uh, discuss what we thought about this book. So, Hoy, what did you think about uh, the first book in the World of Tears series, uh, The Maker of Universes? Uh, it was so much fun to revisit this. I remember reading this as a kid, and the only things I remembered was vaguely how the world was set up and the other character, Kikaha, who we'll get to in a minute. I didn't really have much impression of the protagonist, Robert Wolf. Mm-hmm. Um, What's terrific about this one, I thought, was how it starts because Robert Wolf is, although he's depicted on the covers of most of these versions as, you know, a typical heroic uh, man of action, starts off as this really schlubby middle-aged guy mm-hmm. who's married to kind of a, uh, a figurative harpy of a wife. Uh, what was his wife's name again? Do you remember? Brenda. Brenda. Yep. Robert and, and Brenda Wolf. Robert, Brenda Wolf, and they're someplace kind of suburban. He's mm-hmm. just retired. And he's and miserable. Miserable. Just knows that something's missing from his life. Mm-hmm. They're buying a new house, is that right? That they're retiring to or something? Yeah, like that? they're looking to buy a new house. And while he's looking at one of the houses that he seems to have almost no interest in, he manages to find this Narnia like closet uh, with a doorway to another world. And when he opens it up, we meet uh, Kikaha, and he is fending off some foul beasts. And Kikaha has this great horn, he tosses it at Robert Wolf. The portal to the other world closes. And now he's standing here in this house he's looking at with this magical horn. Right. And he's kind of just believing at the moment, doesn't really know, and kind of goes back to his life. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's like almost doesn't remember, doesn't believe that it actually happened. But he's, he's compelled. And so he sneaks and breaks back into this house mm-hmm. and, and tries to blow the horn and enter the closet. And, mm-hmm. and he succeeds and do, he successfully does so and makes it into this other world where he immediately falls in love with it. He uh, starts getting younger, he starts getting uh, sexier and stronger, and like it's kind of like this ultimate wish fulfillment as he like goes from the schlubby old man to this like totally just like super sexy, like powerful, masculine superman. Right. What I was struck by, though, is as this is happening, there's actually quite a bit of humor on that first level that he ends up on the planet. Oh, and, absolutely. And it's hilarious. You know, the uh, the ape men who are sort of making fun, the women and the ape men are kind of making fun of him as first because he shows mm-hmm. up and they're like, he's this fat, naked old guy. And then just sort of their, their laziness and amorality of the, the inherent inhabitants of the first tier. So that's, uh, I believe it's Okeanos, which is the first tier, right, of the, the world. It is, and the ape men are called zebrillas because they have like zebra stripes. They're right. like zebra gorillas. Yeah. This time I was more readily able to to sort of picture how the planet sort of uh, fit together. But the first time I read it, I really had a hard time picturing how the tiers, um, you know, stacked up. I literally thought of it as a, a series of uh, serving dishes, mm. you know, on a center post. But you showed me this other illustration, which makes a lot more sense. It's more like a, a flat disc. Like a tiered wedding cake. Tiered wedding cake, exactly. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so eventually... And it's a tiered wedding cake just floating in space, basically, right. because there's also a very clearly defined edge of the world, too, that one could fall off of. Right, right. And what was the driving force for him to sort of make his way up and towards the center again initially? Well, he's trying to get to the to the great lord, the creator of this world at the very top. And, and so what was Robert Wolfe's driving force for leaving the life of luxury on the first tier then? Well, he met this incredibly voluptuous, uh, sexy woman named Chryseis, who um, is kind of a Helen of Troy character from uh, classic literature. I forget exactly what story she came from, but she is definitely a part of like ancient Greek mythology or something. And uh, she was she was kidnapped from their world, brought to this one, and now she has like kind of tiger stripes and like slit eyes. So she's kind of this like animalistic, like sexy woman who he like instantly falls in love with. Everybody loves a cat woman. Exactly. And she is kidnapped by these awful, hideous monsters called the Guarls. And he ends up chasing uh, the Guarls all across uh, the world to the very top of the tippy topmost of this tier to... Uh, Rescue Chryseis. It's funny when how they describe as he's going to each level. It's like, oh, the cliffs are literally a thousand miles high. It takes him like, you know, three weeks to climb the cliffs, you know, for each level. And then when he reaches that each rim, he sort of looks at the world and sees how many thousands more miles he has to cross and, mm-hmm. you know, what he's facing. So each and, level is different also. Go ahead. Yeah, and there's one point on his adventure where he even mentions that he's been adventure that they he's been in this world adventuring for three and a half years. Wow, that's great. <laughs> but it moves along. It moves along with such an incredible pace, this book. It definitely owes its roots to, you know, sort of the classic pulps. And, and it's pretty clear that uh, Philip Jose Farmer was so much influenced by this. You know, there's an overt call out later to, to Tarzan. And it's definitely some very Burroughsian feel in terms of the world building and just the sheer, uh, you know, level of invention mm-hmm. in terms of the setting that, um, you know, you know, who would think of something like this? Oh, it's a, you know, flat Earth, but, you know, just floating there in space. There's no other planets. It's just in a green sort of pocket universe. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, it's it's really just, uh, it's super just creative and inventive and just oozing with uh, with inspiration. Um, at least most of it. Some of it, some of it gets a little uh, derivative, uh, not of other fantasy necessarily but like uh, some of it lends too uh, too closely to the to our human world but a lot of that's also because the person who created this universe was very much inspired by aspects of our real world because he comes from this real world uh, it is a, a the first lord is a guy named Jadwin uh, who we discover something about later on which we can discuss later um, but Jadwin, he I think there are there are three tiers to this world and then the final tier and the first one is kind of this garden of eden tier the second one is kind of this like Plains Indian, Plains Native American tier. And then the third one is kind of our classic medieval Europe kind of tier. Am I missing one? Uh, is there a jungle? Oh, it's a lot of forest, right? Is that the medieval tier? That's when they're on the river? Is that the, is that is that, that same tier or a different tier? I'm pretty sure that's the same one. Right, right. Um, but perhaps I'm forgetting. Because yeah. <laughs> it's, it's been, a, it's been I've read a few books since we've uh, right, <laughs> read right, this right. one. So it's not as fresh in my mind as I would right. like. I do look forward to the point where we get in the podcast where we're right. discussing the books that we've just finished oh, in reading. Almost, in almost real time, yes. <laughs> um, I really like the uh, Plains Indian tier for a number of reasons. I think a, it's relatively, I know, I suppose we don't read Westerns as much now, but, you know, it would have been more common then. But it calls out to something different in our sort of high fantasy. We don't normally see stuff that's influenced in that regard. And mm-hmm. then the, the take on the centaurs who are, like, incredibly violent and scary and actually yeah. sort of maybe actually calls back to the original Greek myths because the centaurs were sort of more primal creatures than they are that we, than we picture them in most of our, you know, current fantasy. And I also liked uh, his attempt at making centaurs more 
realistic because right. he discusses how uh, the centaurs look very different than our idea of a centaur. They have horse fur all the way up until their human heads. They've got these massive mouths and these massive thick necks so that their bodies can breathe in the amount of oxygen that they, that a body that size would need. Uh, and whether or not any of that um, makes it more realistic or not, it, 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 it kind of doesn't matter. But the, the fact that he, we're being presented with a um, an atypical centaur and that it's being presented to us in this way because the author is making an effort to kind of make it make a little bit more sense biologically worked for me. Oh, absolutely. And I think, there I go, uh, that this actually, this level also is uh, home to one of the most exciting sequences, action sequences, I think, of any of the books we've read so far, the, the battle with the centaurs yes. and the Amerindians. It was really incredible. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just Really thrilling, right. action-packed. Right. And it's a great depiction of something that maybe, we'll talk more maybe in the gaming sequence, but the ability to draw a battle that is moving through space rather than sort of more static, we meet the enemy head-on kind of situation, you know, mm-hmm. where they're being harried from all sides and they're in a column and the, and the centaurs are riding on either side of them, you know, flinging spears and shooting arrows at them and they're, and they're responding. And so I like that sense of it's not exactly a chase, but it's a running battle. Mm-hmm. And um, maybe we don't do enough of that in sort of more traditional, you know, tabletop. And what's funny is I feel like almost every fantasy RPG book that's not like a really stripped down rules light book that I've read has some like mounted combat section in the book. And in all of my years of fantasy gaming, I have never had an encounter that was exclusively on horseback. Um, I would agree. And it's very strange. Maybe it's just because we're so disconnected from that kind of life, that sort of pastoral life. Um, well, certainly for me, I'm a you know, city kid. Um, and so we maybe have a hard time visualizing it. And again, we don't watch Westerns as much as we used to. So, mm-hmm. you know, having having that as part of our visual uh, and mental vocabulary, you know, um, is not as common. But it was such an exciting sequence and probably the most exciting sequence and maybe even more exciting than the actual concluding battle in some ways mm-hmm. to me. Um, yes, yeah, definitely the best pure action sequence that we've read so far in this in this project here. Yeah, no doubt. One thing that I thought was interesting about this was this kind of um, adult Narnia wish fulfillment aspect of this story. You know, because oftentimes when we're reading these, a lot of them are very much like very clearly geared to um, presenting you with a protagonist who a young man is supposed to be able to read and identify with or, or, or hope to be like or be able to pretend to be like this person. And people talk about like wish fulfillment in terms of pulp. But with this, we actually kind of like literally have this like wish fulfillment aspect of the story. We have this like schlubby guy who comes over and he's got this horrible life back in the real world. He comes here and he's presented with this really amazing life and he doesn't want to go back. He has no interest in returning to his wife and returning to Earth. He wants to stay here and become the next lord of this place or whatever. Um, Ironically, we do discover spoiler alert, that he was the creator of this universe. He actually is this um, Jadawan character. He'd been cast out in a battle with one of his rival lords of the universe and Mm -hmm. lost his memory and ended up on Earth. Um, I always hate, well, I shouldn't hate, I hesitate to make things sort of, you know, Freudian or or super biographical, but it is maybe uh, reflective of the fact that uh, Farmer was, I think, about 47 when he wrote this, not a young man at this Mm -hmm. point anymore. Um, he had an interesting career because he had some early success when he was, you know, in his early thirties for a couple of years, but then his career didn't quite take off. So then he spent the next 14, 15 years as a technical writer, 
um, and even though he won a few science fiction awards, including a Hugo in between. And then he sort of returned to uh, writing uh, quite prolifically in the mid-60s with this book. And then, um, you know, from the late 60s on, his career really took off and he became a full-time writer again around, somewhere around 1967, 1969. So you could feel that there was a lot of pent-up energy over this years that just kind of explodes out in this book and the ones that follow right afterwards. And um, it's, it's just a lot of fun. It doesn't necessarily hang all together perfectly, but I'm, that's not what we're looking for from this book, I, I mm-hmm. think. Yeah, and I, I hope for his, if he was married at the time, I hope that his wife's name was not Brenda for her sake. Because <laughs> that woman is not written in a very uh, nice light. <laughs> not, not, not flattering. Um, although maybe it says more about, again, the protagonist than, um, than you know, Brenda. Is just, you know, we only see it through his eyes initially. So, you know, that he is, you know, uh, both, you know, late middle age but strangely immature in the same way because he's kind of a blank slate when he ended up you know, on Earth, he has no memories of anything before the age of his physical age of or his early twenties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, what else? Uh, what else jumps out at you from this book, Jeff? One of the things for me is that it's it's not your traditional fantasy setting. You know, like it's 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 this it's a it's a very weird world that he's in. And um, one of the things I really like about it is that, like, you know, you've got the the very clear edge of the world, which is something that I know that Jeff Talanian is doing with Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea. You know, it's this flat earth edge of the world. We're also dealing with uh, themes of parallel universes, uh, which I also think is a lot of fun. Um, overall, I would say, you know, I really enjoyed reading this book a lot. I'm excited to see what else is coming up in this particular series. Um yeah, overall, I'm I'm I really enjoyed this one. Yeah, I've enjoyed it a lot, and it doesn't really, um, you know, I mean, maybe some of the attitudes are are from the '60s, but it doesn't it doesn't feel locked in time like this is, you know, from 1920 or 1960s. It feels very modern in terms of the pace and the adventure and what's going on in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's it's still very very readable. Uh, it is still in print. It's available um, in these. Um, trade paperback anthologies, which are kind of pricey, but it also just got released on ebook this month, August of uh, 2017, so uh, with three books per ebook. So uh, go out there and grab it if you're interested in them um, and read along with us because we'll be reading the rest of the series as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, And sometimes reading these novels from a perspective of somebody who's living in 2017, it, it, it can be uh, tricky and difficult seeing how people are um, dis- described and I'd say that this is definitely one of the less problematic ones. But even so, it definitely um, has some pretty, I'd say some pretty major misogyny going on as well. Just because it seems like every single female character, her sexuality and her attractiveness is in some way rating her overall worth. You know, from the very beginning, when we hear about Brenda Wolf, like not only is she like a harpy of a wife too, but we're also hearing about how like she's gained weight and she's got blue hair and she's not attractive anymore. And like all of the women here are, are, are basically sex symbols, like Chryseis, uh or sex, rather, rather sex objects. But uh, Chryseis does manage to kind of hold her own for a while there. Like she becomes a fairly competent character. Um and actually, there's, there's a pretty funny moment, too, where during their travels, Chryseis ends up getting pregnant. 
And um, I just think it's funny just because how hand wavy it is. But um, so they're about to climb up another one of the tiers and it's going to take them like months to come up here. And it, it feels like Philip Jose Farmer just decided that like he didn't want to deal with that. So they're just like, oh, and by the way, she lost the baby and just kind of like continue on with it. Um, but like so maybe like not the best representations of women. But overall, I would say that this is one of the less awkward novels to read in mm -hmm. terms of that kind of stuff. Um a couple things just uh, made me think of. Uh, I get the feeling very much that it feels like this was written in one draft. Like he kept yes. on blew through, and you know he may have gone back, you know, fixed some errors, but he whatever level of inspiration was what grabbed him, and he just blew through it with the inspiration. Um, well, speaking of female characters, what about Padarge? She's a very interesting character. That's true, and um, Padarge, I would still stay say stands by my statement though, because Padarge is a woman who was given this hideous form. And because she now has this hideous form, she now hates all of life and wants to destroy all life that she encounters. So she's also another female character whose place in this world is defined by her level of physical attractiveness. Right. But I would still say that like she is like totally wicked and fantastic and a really cool villain slash ally because she's not she's not our antagonist of the story, but she does nearly kill our protagonists, and then they end up teaming up with her to ultimately take down this whole place. But part of the problem here is that she desperately wants to destroy the the original lord of this land because he's the one who gave her this form. And little does she know right now that he is the first lord of this land. So I will be curious to see what happens in the second book. Because I know by the end of this book, when all of his memories come flooding back, he is absolutely um, committed to atoning for all of his sins. And he's he wants to go back and give everybody the a, 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 a beautiful body who no longer has one anymore. Or make it, turn anybody back who is not happy with the form they're currently in. And I'll, I'll be interested in seeing how Padarge handles that. What do you think of her? Um, I think she's a terrific character in the sense, as you say, that she's neither the villain, but she's not, and she's a sort of grudging ally is not the right word, but um, a, an ally with her own agenda. Yes. Um, and I think, um, you know, as we talk more about gaming, that's something that we don't always do in terms of creating uh, NPCs, having them effectively sort of uh, be a part of the story without being a mouthpiece for the game master. Um and how to bring back recurring characters, but that also have their own agendas and that sort of shape the world. So they're not just, um, you know, either game master prop or conversely, um, just someone to carry the load for the player characters in a sense. Mm. Um, so I think that she's a, a terrific character. Um, I don't really don't remember what happens next game because I read these so long ago um, in terms of how she develops as a character. I know that Kikaha, um, who is also human from Earth. He's, he's not in any way supernatural, but has somehow he somehow found the device that would, one of the devices that would allow him to, you know, move through dimensions and ends up on the world of tears. He's mm -hmm. um, very much human, but he's more of a classical pulp character, but very uh, sort of cheerful, sort of trickster. I mean, he's literally called a trickster, but a cheerful yeah. uh, adventurer type. Um, n not necessarily the burly hero. Um, and he's a terrific character, and he comes more into his own later in the series, um, and as, is the protagonist for a couple of the books as well. Mm -hmm. So, um, so it's a fun journey, I think, to to go on with the with these characters. And yeah. with with him, with Kikaha, 
there are some there are definitely some moments that I um, that I thought worked in this that I was complaining about in The Hobbit. Uh, so I guess we can get back to me Hobbit bashing a little bit more. I really do. I love that book. I really do. I promise. Um, but you know, I was complaining. He's, he's only saying that because there's a halfling holding a spear to his wrist right now. <laughs> uh, but you know, I one of my complaints about The Hobbit was that Gandalf kept mysteriously showing up just in time whenever he was needed. And there were there were a few times in this story as well where Kikaha would suddenly appear uh, because they had been separated at some point, and then Kikaha's there and he helps save the day. But I, what I would say makes the difference between uh, Gandalf saving the day randomly like that and Kikaha saving the day randomly like that is I feel like Kikaha and Robert Wolf are kind of about the same power level. And also it's done with such a wink each time too. You know, it's like a, oh, I thought that was going to be you. You know, like there, there, there's this moment where it, it, they, it, they're so playful about it instead of it being like a, oh, I'm Gandalf and I'm here to save the day, you know. Oh, for sure. And Kikaha's not, he's presented as an incredibly able physical specimen, but he's not superhuman. Yeah. It's really more that he knows more. He's been on this earth, uh, the world of tears for 20, 30 years, basically since after World War II. He somehow ended up here, and you know, if this book was written in 1965, so he's been—he has all the experience of traveling up and down through the tiers. Most of the other characters uh, in the book are very incurious, and Kikaha is the only one who travels up and down through the tiers um, on his own power. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, you know, at one point, again, you're saying with a wink. You know, at one point, uh, he shows up on one of the tiers with his ape man allies, and he swings out of the jungle. And uh, mm, Robert yes. Wolf goes, "Robert Wolf goes, what are you called on this level?" And he goes. Guess. <laughs> so that's, that's great. That's a wink and a half. One thing that is interesting that definitely feels like potentially a uh, a hole in the logic of this universe, though, is you were talking about the relative uh, incuriousness of the people who reside on the world of tears on the on the first world, which I believe is called Okeanos, Okeanos the first yeah. tier. Yeah, uh, you've got kind of your Garden of Eden level. And on this level, people really aren't ever faced with any kind of danger. Uh, everything is is safe and sanitized. And some of these people who are living there have been living there for thousands of years. They've been taken from various points in human history, placed in this world. And one of the things that they talk about with the lords who created this the, 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 this universe and many others, is that because they are immortal, they get so bored that all they they can do to entertain themselves is war with the other lords. So I'm like, if you've got all these people in this Garden of Eden level who are also basically immortal, why are they satisfied with just frolicking naked on the beach and having little orgies and drinking rum out of coconuts when the makers of these universes are so insanely wrought with ennui that all they can do is war with one another? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, one thing they do bring up, though, is that this, um, and this is maybe ties in a little bit with um, Edgar Rice Burroughs, who farmers a huge fan of, is that the sense of time gets out of whack. You mm. know, it's not a traditional rotating plant. So, yes, every day is like the next, but you don't necessarily have a sense of time passing, at least on Okeanos. That's that true. first level. And you know how that time is completely out of whack in Pellucidar. Yeah. Um, so maybe there's that sense there. But it's, again, I think something that doesn't bear too much scrutiny. He, he's doing, he's prevent, uh, presenting of this completely whacked out concept. But like Burroughs, he's not going to drill down into the pure 
mechanics of it if it doesn't interest him. Like, it interested him with the centaurs to sure. say, how would a centaur work? Yeah. But he's not like, oh, this is how gravity works on this on this world. And it's just like, just go with it. It seems to be Farmer's sort of um, unspoken mantra. Yeah, you no, I, I hear you there. And also, I think maybe I'll just argue with myself here for a moment because I think – uh, now that I've said this out loud, I actually have a counter argument to my my, my initial uh, concern or my initial complaint, which is that um, one of the things that they mention explicitly in the story is that all these people who live here, you know, on some level, they are under the control of the Lord. Because at one point, Robert Wolf is asking Kikaha why they don't have any guns here and any gunpowder. And he said, well, the Lord doesn't allow them to do that. And he's like, well, why don't they rebel and do it anyways? And he's like, oh, well, you know, the Lord implanted a suggestion in their mind that just makes it like it's a moral thing. They just won't do it. So perhaps he also did that with the people who live in the Garden of Eden level where like they really he like he just implanted that they are going to live in peace and harmony with one another. Mm-hmm. And um it's interesting that the, the lords are not presented as actually even that intelligent. And I think they specifically say that they've basically kind of forgotten how to create the technologies that managed to make them these private universes. They're, they're just, oh, yeah. you know, um, kids, overgrown kids with a lot of toys, you know, in a sense. That, you know. Oh, yeah. It's, it, it's, it's, they're definitely from a world of crazy super science, but they have gotten, for whatever reason, that part is not explained to us, we have reached a point where they don't even understand the super science anymore. They're just surrounded by all their toys. Right. And to them, and you know, as as well as to everybody else, to them it might as well be magic, right? Mm-hmm. And so these these things become very totemic, you know, like the horn. It's a, you know, or the rival lord is looking for this piece of half circle of metal that will, when connected together, makes a gate. But he doesn't know how it works. He can't create a new one, mm-hmm. right? So he spends like 30 years on Earth looking for this other piece. Again, it's super science could be magical artifact, mm-hmm. how we depict them. We don't always have to let the players know how things work if we're in a game situation. You just know that they do this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of cool. We don't always have to um, spend, you know, one temptation as p- people who are like the game master or judge, whatever you may term it, whatever game you're playing, is that tendency to want to really drill down and work out all the details. But, you know... That actually is fine for when you're not at the table, but don't expect your players to ever discover that, mm-hmm. people moving through this world to ever discover it. If it helps you make the world more real for you as the game master, that's terrific, but it's not going to probably help most of the players. Mm-hmm. So just you know, put the pieces, the key pieces out there, and if they start to investigate or drill down, then sure, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think it bears too much thought. And sometimes the tendency is, you know, as game masters and judges to be total control freaks and want to work out every single level of detail on there, you know. Um, It's certainly not helpful at a um, open table, short session type situation. Maybe more helpful in a a long campaign game. Sure. So, So, Hoy, uh, this, uh, the World of Tears series is listed on the Appendix N as a series that we should read. Uh, It's not this title specifically. It's It's the entire series that's recommended. And um, I'm curious, why do you think this is included in Gary Gygax's The Appendix N? Um, I think for, first and foremost, for sheer reading pleasure, the level of adventure, uh, yes. I think is, is one reason there. Um, but I think the, there's some pretty cool stuff. I did, you know, it just occurred to me again, you know, I was thinking of it just as an alternate dimension, um, you know, crazy world building. But uh, we could use this as an example of planar travel. 
right? So that was a very heavy element, uh, certainly by AD&D, not so much in OD&D, but, you know, alternate planes of reality that you can travel to. Um, and with the mechanisms with which to travel to those alternate you know, planes of reality, that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, moving through very clearly defined settings. Uh, so, you know, our world, you know, we don't think necessarily, okay, well, Canada is completely different from the United States. It is, but <laughs> we don't necessarily think of it that way. So it just blends in smoothly. Or and there's, well, there's these interzones between this uh, this uh, community or this uh, culture and the next. Whereas here we have these, you know, thousand-mile-high cliffs, and then suddenly we're in a different world. Right? Yes. And so creating these different zones for adventure mm-hmm. is in giving yourself a sort of mental handle on it, mm-hmm. right, I think is something that, you know, is helpful for any sort of game master. Yeah. So, and then, you know, it's sort of the invention of these sort of monsters and creatures. You know, they don't appear in this form in the monster manual as far as I, uh, you know, recall. But just the idea, okay, that we can go out and create these creatures that are really interesting and fascinating. Um, Well, there is one creature specifically that I think was lifted directly out of here, which is the axe beak. Right. And the the axe beak, I remember the first time I was looking at the AD&D monster manual and I'm just like, what a goofy little monster. Like, why is why is this in here? Why did anybody think this was a good idea? And I get it now because the axe beak in Maker of Universes is actually pretty fearsome. Like, he's like a little Tyrannosaurus Rex, which I actually I've, – I've been a huge fan of this idea that dinosaurs were feathered. Mm-hmm. And combining that with the, the axe beak here just makes me very happy. It, right. it works really well for me. Right. Uh, you know, people forget how dangerous an ostrich can be, and that's a dinosaur, right? Yeah, so totally. So. But yeah, it does seem like uh, flipping through the Maker of Universes, you can find quite a few entries in the Monster Manual because you've got a bunch of giant insects. You have merfolk. You've got dryads and giant eagles and giant ravens and harpies. Ape men, of course. There's always ape men. Yeah, mammoths, wild horses, dire wolves. Uh, you've got dragons. You've got your regular dragons and your water dragons. Um, the dragons in this one that they encountered, though, were vegetarian and didn't breathe fire. They were, um, or I guess I shouldn't say vegetarian because that makes it sound like it's a lifestyle choice. They, they were herbivores. <laughs> herbivores. <laughs> uh, but uh, it, it is mentioned that there are dragons that do that are carnivores, mm-hmm. but that this particular breed that he encountered were herbivores. Uh, but yeah, but so there are there are quite a few entries in the monster manual that are found in this novel. Um, yeah, so mon- uh, the monsters, the creatures, and again, just the pure physical setting that we just talk about, and you say, oh, you know, this is crazy. We don't have to have it on a, a you know a round you know typical globe, um, and uh, we can sort of have this travel. You can hand wave it or not. At some points he hand waves it. At some point, like the very last tier when he's um, traveling up, you know, talking about traveling up with Chris Ace, he, you know, it's not a lot of pages, but he's talking about the difficulty and like mm-hmm. the weeks or months it takes them to travel up this this cliff. Yeah. Um, and they have plenty of encounters on the cliffs as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think, you know, sh- from sheer sort of world building, a, a different idea of world building and also the, um, you know, the hodgepodge nature of it might bother people, but, you know, a lot of times when we're building, especially when we were younger, building these plants, it's like, oh, I want a, a Roman culture over here. I want an Egyptian culture over here. I want samurai over here. And this kind of structure allows for it. Uh, so that's a ton of fun right yeah. there. Um, so, you know, never let sort of plausibility get in the way of, you know, cool. <laughs> and certainly, in, you know, for your players and for yourself, I guess. Yeah. 
and maybe this next thought is a little is a little too meta. However, in a lot of ways, Robert Wolf is the dungeon master of this world because he is Jadwin and he's the person who created this world. And now he is exploring the world in which he has created, uh, which is also kind of fun. And one of the things that I thought was interesting is on that very first level on Okeanos, you know, the the people uh, don't die of uh, old age of or old sickness age. or yeah. also there's just tons of easy food sources. Food just grows everywhere and it's delicious and right. it's abundant and right. easy to eat. Uh, there is no they don't ever need to worry about trash removal because there are these little bipedal foxes who just walk around and like eat all of the garbage. At one point, they encounter a body of water they need to get across, and they suddenly find these like giant uh, sailing mollusks, and they just climb on the back of one of these back, sailing um, mollusks, and <laughs> you know, step on the soft spot and direct the sail on exactly. the, the, big, the big fin on the back. It's, and it, it 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 brings me to the idea of like as a dungeon master, what do we want to hand wave and what don't we want to hand wave? You know, because clearly. Jadwin, Robert Wolf, as Dungeon Master, decided that he wanted to hand wave a lot of these kind of more kind of basic biological desires and uh, and difficult stuff um, on this first tier. Like food is just available. Waste will be taken care of. You need to cross over here. Fine. You can cross over there. We're not going to worry about that. Um, because, you know, as, as a Dungeon Master, it kind of depends on your style and depends on the system you're playing. But it's like you know, tracking rations, tracking ammunition, but also I can't think of any adventure role-playing game where you need to track things like, have you used the restroom recently? You know, like that kind of thing we always hand wave. There's kind of this universal unspoken, like we're not going to worry about that kind of biological need in the dungeon. Well, the GURPS might have a pooping skill, but I'm not sure. (laughs) Yeah, perhaps. (laughs) Um, I kid, I kid. (laughs) (laughs) But... um, but yeah, so it, it it is it is kind of interesting to kind of see like what this maker of this universe chose to hand wave. Another thing is that there were multiple times in the story where they came across forces that they couldn't defeat and rather than dying, they were captured. Right, that's always been a um what do you call it? A bugbear in the metaphysical sense for players, because that's one thing I've noticed is that players hate, 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 hate to get captured. They'll rather take a TPK than get captured a lot of times. So yeah. how do you how do you work that into the level of adventure and say to to the players, you know, don't worry, it'll be fine. Just go, you know, get captured, but then the <laughs> opportunity for adventure will arise next out of that. You uh-huh. know, um, you know, without you know, sort of totally holding their hand and say, listen, let's go with the go with the conceit mm-hmm. a little bit. And that's that's a hard one to, to pull off. And so that's one that works all the time in fiction, but almost never works at the table in terms of you know having players captured. Yeah. Yeah, and I wonder does it not work because the because it's intrinsically flawed or does it not work because we haven't tried it enough? You know, because I, I feel like I don't know, maybe maybe as a player it feels cheap. Like maybe you feel like in that moment, if it truly was a TPK, it almost feels like you're being robbed of this TPK if your judge uh, sets it up so that you're, oh, never mind, you're just captured. Like you guys are actually okay. Uh, maybe like it feels like this, it's, it's cheating somehow. Right. I think that would. But if you said, you know, you would have to make it work mechanically. I mean, you would have to have either them getting knocked out, say, you know, you're knocked unconscious there and you, you know, you thought your character's dead, you wake up and you've got like five hit points or whatever it is the, the appropriate number for your system. 
or that the enemy offers them a chance to surrender mm-hmm. in some in some meaningful way. And maybe you start with them sort of exemplify that by, for example, if the party is not just all player characters, if they have hirelings or if there's a couple NPCs along, have a couple of them get captured or knocked out, mm-hmm. right, um, before you make it to the player characters. Um, yeah. But, yeah, we, we're losing that element of the excitement of adventure. Again, the you know, players hate, hate to get parted from any, whatever gear that they received in their adventures. Yeah. Um, so, you know, again, I, we always talk about that phrase, getting buy-in from your players. It's hard to say I want buy-in for this each little specific thing that might happen, but just say, listen, this is the kind of flavor that we're going with for. Mm-hmm. We're going for high pulp or whatever flavor. So there are some conventions of high pulp, and, you know, you're desperate murder hobos is a different game than mm-hmm. than high pulp. Yeah. Um, and one thing that I just thought of is, you know, in Dungeon Crawl Classics, there's this idea of rolling the body. And the way that works for those who are listening to this program who may not be familiar with that rule set is that when you get down to zero hit points, after the combat is over, if you haven't been magically healed, um, we can roll your body over. Another character can come up and roll your body over and just make sure that you're not actually just laying there breathing. And the way that works mechanically is you roll a d20, and if it's your luck score or lower, then you are fine. So what might be interesting is if you did have a TPK scenario where all of your all of your players went to blow zero hit points, have everybody roll their body and just do a, do a, do a luck roll, and those of those who pass the roll the body check end up waking up. To, in, the, uh, in the cells, with in you. the cell, right. or or tied up and like on a stake that's being carried through the wilderness right, right. now, They're slung over the back of a horse, you exactly, know, as, you know, over a zebrilla shoulder, and they wake up that way with one hit point, right, uh, and and no, no gear, and have that be kind of like the launch for the next the next part of their adventure, right, to bide their time and and you know figure out where they can escape, and you always have to give them something, you know, give them time to observe and say, oh, okay, you know. Guards look a little lax or lazy. You know, they're taking care of you. They thought you were pushovers, you know, so um, something like that. Um, yeah, I think that is, um, you know, the escape The escape thing is almost never played out in, in the games that I've played. So I, I think that would be really exciting to try try that and have them, um, you know, maybe not get all their original gear back, but discover other gear and equipment and, and you know, maybe discover another NPC prisoner who is, you know, can be an ally or lead, point them to an, another adventure. Um, and if they're clever, I mean, sure, they can get their original gear back, but sure. like they have to, they have to figure out a way to make that happen. Right. And the only time I remember that sort of in classical D and D is in one of the, um, is it the second or third uh, A series, slave against the slave lords uh, mm-hmm. module, where they, I think it's maybe or maybe it's the fourth, they wake up in the caverns of the slave lords and they don't have any gear and they have to go get that. Of course, one of the problems with that mechanism, at least in sort of classical D and D, is that your armor class it goes down to you know. It's almost worthless at that point. You have no protection whatsoever. Um, I think DCC is maybe a tiny bit more successful with that because you also have your luck mechanic and stuff like that to say that even when you're not immediately have any weapons or gear, that you're still sort of a, a viable character. And that's yeah. not, not the case so much in sort of AD&D as written. Mm-hmm. Um, short of some very clever play, but that doesn't become very heroic play in that regard. That's true. So, um, so yeah, that that's fun. I think the idea of sort of these overlords who are sort of um, actually kind of petty rather than, like, masterminds is, I think, kind of a fun thing. That would be fun to have sort of, like, you know, the villains are just kind of, like, petty and selfish. That might yeah. be a fun thing to play with. And uh, we already mentioned having sort of allies who have their own agendas or temporary allies. But, you know, not necessarily have them turn around and immediately betray the players at the first, you know, sign a level of, you know, 
first point of convenience, just have them maybe part ways or, or be difficult recalcitrant allies, you know, that aren't always going to do what you want them to do. Mm-hmm. I think that, that would be interesting, you know, to bring into the game. Again, that's more, again, more successful, again, in a sort of more extended play situation, campaign play, sandboxy play, rather than maybe, again, a, you know, uh, open table, a short four-hour session of some sort. Yeah. Another thing that I think really works is the climax of this novel. You know, they go on this really long journey to get to this top tier, and Philip Jose Farmer does not disappoint because, like, when they get up there, it's this crazy trap-filled fortress that's so incredibly lethal. And the only real reason why they're not dying left and right is because this is when his memories are starting to flood back in and he knows which which pathways to go down and which traps to avoid. But also one of the things that they do prior to getting to this place is they've teamed up with the with the giant eagles and padarge and they're just storming the place together. Right, it's very much a combined arms operation where they're coming from the air, they're coming yes. from the water, the land, the whole works. It's very uh you know hitting the beach yeah. on D Day. And it's like I, I really like this idea of like prepare for your big showdown. You know, and I know that in kind of classical D and D play. Actually, you know, that I'm going to restate that because I know in contemporary D and D play, the idea is that like the adventurers go at it alone, and everything they do is on their own. And I think that was actually less common in in classical D and D because I think the idea of henchmen and followers were a much bigger deal back then as well. But also, I think people were maybe more encouraged back then to find to find ally tribes to help out with big showdowns. But that's less. I think that's less common today. I think that is less common, and I think that um, I think as early as uh, I think Temple of the Frog in uh, Blackmoor, you know, that is there was a provision for finding like you know hundreds of allies because it was like hundreds of frogs or whatever the mm-hmm. creatures were in the Blackmoor. So. You know, if you take your time, make an, find an ally, they could be, yeah. you know, storming the front and you sneak in the back and, you know, find your way up to the tower. Definitely. Um, and, you know, I remember always having some some level of hireling so that the number of players might be four or five, but the party itself would effectively be 20 or 30. It would be an expedition rather than just a bunch of guys, you know, sneaking through, a, you know, a fortress. Um, so I just got through playing Steading of the Hill Giant Chief, and there's a moment in the dungeons where you can team up with this group of kind of rebel orcs to help you get through like the troglodyte area. And that's the very first adventure ever published by TSR for Dungeons and Dragons. So it's definitely a part of the old school. You, yeah, you and I are totally on the same page with this. I'm curious why that became, why that has become less of a trope. I almost wonder if it's video games. I would think maybe, yes. I mean, I know you can do form allies in some of the MMOs, but that's other players rather mm-hmm. than sort of NPCs. Yeah. Um, and in video games, yeah, they don't allow for that level of social interaction that is um, limitless. I mean, yeah. There's some very scripted social interactions that you can say, do this and then blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, they become your ally or for this one segment of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, but unless it's a sort of open world MMO, it's much harder to simulate that. But yeah, so I would say um, as a, a good tip for good game design from this might be, you know, create just this incredibly insane... Um, climax for people and give them opportunities to get help to help them out with this completely insane climax. Sure, sure. Along the way, they should encounter, you know, if they don't slaughter the harpies or the eagles to find out, that, oh, the eagles actually have a grudge against, you know, the uh, the lord of the tower. They may not care about any of the 
other things that the party cares about. Yeah. yeah. So yes, you should always present those things along. Uh, and it gives it a more of a living, breathing, as artificial as the world of tears is, it still feels like a living, breathing mm-hmm. environment, um, mm-hmm. not just a pure backdrop that yeah. the characters are, are charging through. And giving them a finale that can't be dealt with just by walking in swinging swords. You know, I think Harley Strode did a really amazing job of that with Sailors on the Starless Sea, because here you have a zero-level funnel, and the, the, the climax of this is on a giant underground ziggurat in the middle of this underground sea that's just teeming with dozens of beastmen, and they're whole, they're whole, putting on this horrific ritual. And if you just hop on this island and start slashing at stuff, you're gonna die. You're like dying. it's gonna be hands down a TPK, and that is incredibly evident from the moment you're getting anywhere near this thing. And because of that, like the play, like I see like the terror in the player's eyes as they're like trying to quickly come up with like, oh, how are we gonna do with this? I don't know. And 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 that is really good game design and really fun adventuring. By by the way, it occurs to me uh, since we're kind of down our own rabbit hole that we've actually never defined the term TPK on this podcast, which means total party kill, mm. which means that all the players are killed. Um, and that's not usually interesting if it happens too early. So uh, <laughs> it can be fine for the climax. Um, and, and, and it should always be on the table as a possible consequence for uh, unskillful play. Uh, I agree with, with one asterisk. Mm-hmm. I feel like the social contract is important. And if you're playing a game like Dungeon Call Classics or an old school version of D&D, the social contract is that you're playing a highly lethal game and your characters can very easily die. If you're playing third or fourth edition D&D or Pathfinder... Or Fate. Or, I, or I, any I, of the modern I, games. I'm not as familiar with those. But, yeah. um, but if you're playing those games and you have spent a lot of time in character creation and you're playing a game where you are where there are codified rules for giving you balanced encounters, then the social contract there is that for the most part, you're not going to be facing encounters that are going to kill you. So I would say if you're playing in a game where the social contract is that it's not highly lethal, then unless you're being completely moronic, it should be, you should, you should feel comfortable assuming that your characters are not going to die. I personally don't enjoy that kind of gameplay. I much prefer the game style that's highly lethal. That's really fun for me because if I'm playing a game where I'm pretty sure I'm not going to die and I have no real fear of my character dying, then I don't have any of that suspense. I'm not on the edge of my seat. I don't get that same level of excitement. But that's the game, the style of gaming that appeals to me. Uh, and I agree. That's so much of what I have come back to the table for. Mm-hmm. You know, And I totally understand. I, I haven't played Pathfinder or sort of the more complex later iterations of D&D, but if you've spent three months sort of optimizing your character and leveling them up, it could be a real disappointment to have them killed off, you know, before the climax of an adventure. Oh, Uh, and people get so invested in like, you know, oh, by the time I get to ninth level, I want to make sure I have this feat. But to get this feat, there are these three feats that are prerequisites, and I need to get a 14 strength, so I'm going to have to use the strength increase that I get at fourth level. People spend so much time planning these things out in advance, and if that kind of game style appeals to you, then I know that if that kind of game style appealed to me and I put all this effort into a character, I was just killed off because I was put into this situation, that might be very upsetting to me as a player. And actually, it's interesting because ironically, the pro- obviously the protagonists don't die in high pulp, but the sense of danger is always there. And I don't feel that sense of danger in sort of these sort of uh, challenge rating 
oriented games absolutely at not at never all that, there's never that level of danger it's only do i get knocked down how, uh you know how many how many turns is it before i'm back at full strength or where do yeah. i find my level ups or my my boosts my health you know mm-hmm. my health restoration yeah and agreed i tend to agree it's uh, partly part of the video game it might be chicken the egg i mean partly video game and just i remember in the 90s games became complex in the name of you know reality with air quotes mm-hmm. around that yeah. um with the irony that people wouldn't die in situations where any normal human being, heroic or not, would have died. Yeah. Um, so there's that element. You know, we're both here because we are in tune with what we perceive to be the sort of 70s ethos of yes. gaming. Um, and I'm not sure it was not played the same way at every table, you know. Oh, I, of course. You know, but that general ethos, I think, is more appealing to us. And especially with AD&D, I mean, we all know that there are so many kids out there who are like, yeah, let's 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 roll up 20th level characters and let's go fight the gods and the de- deities and demigods. And like, you know, that that kind of style that, was... That was me. <laughs> was it? <laughs> that was me. Okay, well, I'm, I'm sure those characters weren't dying left, left no, and right. No, no, no. I, I mean, I had some characters die, but definitely, you know, if we had a few of those games like... <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, I don't think, even to this day, I don't think I have ever rolled up a 20th level character just out of curiosity. Huh, yeah. I've never had, I've never had a character actually reach 20th level on their own merits. So, well, <laughs> I think or, the number right. of people who truly have, who yeah. have like done XP the right way, are people who've been playing the same campaign for 30 years. Literally 30 years. Yeah. yeah. Literally 30 years every two weeks. Yes, yeah. absolutely. So um, is there anything else that you want to talk about before we wrap this episode up? No, I'm uh, very much looking forward to reading the rest of the series. Um, and when's the next one? This Probably early next year, later this year? I think uh, this fall, I think, late this fall. I don't have the immediate answer to that on the right. top of my head, but right. yes, that, yeah. that it, it's forthcoming. Okay, absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's, it's a ton of fun. And um, I think I'll also be looking forward to reading Farmer's other work because he had tremendous body work. I think 60-plus novels. Uh, not all of them uh, sort of this kind of uh, fantasy pulp. He had straight science fiction. He had um, riffs on classic pulps. He had uh, sort of psychosexual horror, a couple of novels that he wrote there. Um, so he's a, uh, he contains multitudes, so it'll be, be a lot of fun. Um, anyway, so... Um, and speaking of future reading, uh, what are our next two episodes going to okay. be on? Our next episode will be Paul Anderson's Three Hearts and Three Lions, and then followed by Roger Zelazny's Jack of Shadows. So it'll be very exciting. Ooh-hoo. Okay. So uh, do us a favor. If you like what we're doing here, uh, rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to our podcast. It really does help other people find our podcast. Um, if you want to email us for any reason, we're at Appendix N Book Club at gmail.com. Uh, we have very uh, detailed show notes, and the episodes are actually on our website. That's appendixnbookclub.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at, at appendix underscore n. We have an additional iTunes review that I would love to share. Okay. It is a five-star review from July 25th from I Ate the Boy Wonder. Uh, the subject line is not into D&D, but into this podcast. And it says, I don't really know much about D&D, but this podcast is awesome. Really cool to learn about all these books that influence such a powerful game. I would highly recommend it. And I can't wait for the next episode. Very cool. Thank Very you sweet. so much. So Thank you so much, I8. So. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, I guess I'll say uh, see you in the stacks. Read on. Read on.